Hey team, it's the Sales Hacker Podcast and your host Sam Jacobs. I'm the founder of the Revenue Collective. We started in New York, we've now got chapters in London, and we're launching Boston, Toronto, and Denver pretty soon. So that's pretty exciting. I'm also the Chief Revenue Officer of a company called Behavox. But most importantly, I'm the host of this show, and this is episode 29. We've got a great show today. We're interviewing Chris Stegnan, who is the Chief Revenue Officer of Snowflake Computing. Snowflake and Chris particularly are a great story about going from Chris was actually the first sales hire at Snowflake. They didn't have a go-to-market model. They didn't have a go-to-market commercial strategy. Chris built that from the ground up. They are now well past $100 million in ARR and one of the most successful enterprise technology businesses to come out of Silicon Valley and, in fact, out of the U.S. in a long, long time. And Chris has an amazing approach to how he managed his career, how he sought out mentors, how he laid the foundation so that he could one day become a VP of sales and a CRO. And it's a fantastic conversation. Now, one of the things we must do, we must do this. We have to thank our sponsors. We've got two sponsors this week. And you probably heard of them already. The first is Aircall. Aircall is a phone call system designed for the modern sales team. They seamlessly, seamlessly without seams, integrate into your CRM, eliminating data entry for your reps and providing you with greater visibility into your team's performance through advanced reporting. Now, when it's time to scale, what can you do? You know what you can do. You can add new lines and minutes, and you can use in-call coaching to reduce ramp time for your new reps. Visit aircall.io forward slash sales hacker to see why Uber, Dun & Bradstreet, Pipedrive, and thousands of others trust Aircall for their most critical sales conversations. Our second sponsor is Outreach.io, the leading sales engagement platform. Outreach triples the productivity of sales teams and empowers them to drive predictable and measurable revenue growth. That's interesting, isn't it? Now what's more, by prioritizing the right activities and scaling customer engagement with intelligent automation, not stupid automation, it's intelligent automation, Outreach makes customer-facing teams more effective and improves visibility into what really drives results. Hop over to outreach.io forward slash sales hacker to see how thousands of customers, including Cloudera, Glassdoor, Pandora, and Zillow, rely on Outreach to deliver higher revenue per sales rep. Now, give me two seconds. I want to point out some fans that have written in. One of the things, if you're listening to this and you're in the car, that's an honor. That's an honor for me to be sharing this car ride with you. And I want to thank some of the folks that have reached out. Robert Hansen specifically said that he's been driving around a lot and I kept him company or sorry, I, we, the Sales Hacker Podcast team, which is a big team of people, kept him company on his long drive. We also have outreach from Scott Vanderleek, Masha Rutovsky, Trent Vanderstelt, and Daniel Holmberg. So all of you, thanks so much for reaching out. And the folks that have reached out and said, hey, I drove from Chicago to Austin, Texas, and uh, I listened to the Sales Hacker podcast the whole way. Thank you. Thank you very much. We've got a bunch of great guests coming up, and we've got a bunch of exciting new content ideas that we're going to be testing. So thank you very much. Without further ado, let us listen to Chris Degnan, CRO at Snowflake Computing. Hey, everybody. It's Sam Jacobs, and welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Today, we're incredibly excited to have Chris Degnan on the show. Chris is the Chief Revenue Officer of Snowflake Computing. He's got a long and storied career in Silicon Valley, originally coming out to the Valley in 1997 and winding up in San Francisco during the original dot-com boom. His first big start was at EMC, where he spent eight years both as a rep and a frontline sales manager. 
He then left in 2012, which we'll hear about, to join a company called Avexa that was acquired by EMC, and he eventually found his way in the summer of 2013 to Snowflake Computing. And now Snowflake is, I think we'll find out, but well over 100 million in run rate, or is certainly close to that number. And one of the fastest growing SaaS platforms of all time. They've got over 1,000 customers. Chris oversees a sales organization in the US, Europe, and the APAC region. And we're incredibly excited to have him. So welcome, Chris. Thanks, Sam. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So we'd like to start off to just to frame people's experience and context. You're Chris Degnan, you're the CRO at Snowflake Computing. Give us a quick 30-second elevator pitch on Snowflake, who they are, what they do. So at Snowflake, we built a cloud database from scratch. Uh, we started building that in 2012. Our founders are PhDs from, from Oracle and, and other major database companies. And we are native to the cloud. We are on AWS. We are on Microsoft, Azure. And we soon next year will be on Google Cloud as well. And from a competitive landscape, we compete with Amazon, Google, and Microsoft from a cloud data warehousing perspective. And then on-premise vendors are, are folks like Teradata, Oracle, IBM, Netiza, those types of folks that we compete with on the on-premise world. Was I correct in the revenue range? Give us rough ARR, obviously, private company, confidential, but what's the range? (laughs) (laughs) Confidential, but what is it? So we'll do from a rep, there's obviously two numbers. There's ACV bookings is really my goal, and there's revenue. We're a usage-based revenue system, so kind of unique in that world. We'll do well over $100 million in revenue and somewhere in the $150 million in ACV bookings this year. Wow. Well, congratulations. That's incredible. And the company, I think, has raised, a, am I reading this right, $463 million? Yes, $463 million from <laughs> Sutter Hill, Redpoint, Altimeter, Iconic, Sequoia, and Madrona. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of millions. Tell us about your sales org. So how many people, how do the functions split out? Walk us through that a little bit. So we have a field sales organization. I think we originated, I was effectively sales rep number one in Snowflake about five years ago. And so we originated as a field selling organization. And we've grown that to over 120 field reps globally. Within my sales team, we also have a corporate sales team, which is our inside sales team, which is about 15 people. And we're really starting to build that muscle, if you will, now. In addition, we have a BDR organization and and we're roughly one BDR to every three sales reps. That's our rough ratio. And on top of that, I have the sales engineering organization, which is a, for every two sales reps, there's one SE. So it's a two to one ratio. And then we have, I have the alliances organization as well as the sales operations organization. That is a large organization. And am I correct that, I mean, you've been doing startups since, or at least you've been doing software sales, regardless of size since 1998. So basically for 20 years. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. So you're old, just like me. (laughs) (laughs) I am old. Even going back, I mean, I talked to a lot of people that graduated from, you know, with law degrees or journalism degrees. How'd you end up in sales in the first place? And and how did that journey take you to Snowflake? Yeah, I think when I grew up in the Boston area, I think everyone, I thought everyone made, you know, money in, in finance. And when I got out to the Bay Area, I got into a program at Franklin Templeton, which was a management trainee program, and they rotate you through departments every four months. And it was, it was a great experience. And my first rotation was through human resources, and I knew that was not a career path for me. I did not like HR. And then I went into the sales organization, and I felt like, hey, this is something I like. I like trying to sell something. I enjoyed 
the people that I was talking to, but I didn't necessarily like the finance aspect of sales. And so that's when, you know, it was a dot-com boom. I got involved in startups and, and I kind of navigated my way to a company called Covalent Technologies, um, where it was my first real true enterprise tech sale. And then from there, got in, into EMC and, you know, that's all she wrote. Now I'm over here at Snowflake. And so EMC, sort of a big company, you started off as a sales rep, is that right? And then walk us through that evolution. You became a manager. How'd you end up as the CRO of, yeah. uh, of such a huge company? Yeah, it's kind of lucky. Um, <laughs> better lucky than good, as I always say. No, um, you know, when I interviewed at EMC, you know, I think this is probably old school, but I, I had a printed resume and I put on the printed resume. My objective was to be the uh, vice president of sales someday. That's very true to form. I don't think I ever want to do anything other than sell. I, I can't imagine being a CEO. I don't, there's functions within the organization that I never would want to manage. And so from that standpoint, that was my high level objective and career objective. And I kind of said, what are the things that I need to do to get there? So I knew that I had to be a successful sales rep and I, I did that for four years. And then I really pushed to be a frontline manager and got that frontline job at, at EMC. And I'll tell you, man, EMC was a grind. It was a very tough organization to work at, but I learned a lot. And I call it effectively my MBA in sales at EMC. And then at the end of my time at EMC, I got sick of selling storage. I got introduced to the John McMahon network, I'll call it, via my friend Adam Ahrens, who's, who's the ex-CRO at Okta and in sort of retirement right now. And uh, in that world, being part of that John McMahon world opens up a lot of doors. And I, I went to Avexa, worked for a guy by the name of Andy Byron, another phenomenal sales leader. And in my tenure at Avexa, probably the hardest sale of my career, but had a lot of fun. And on my 12 month anniversary, we got bought by EMC. So being a back into EMC was not what I signed up for. And, and even though I had to leave, you know, shares that were worth a lot of money on the table, I kind of took a leap of faith in jumping to Snowflake back in 2013. The reason I did it is there's a lot of sales leaders within the enterprise tech space that have the history of being successful. They're also, in part, my French assholes. And I made the decision after a lot of these companies that came after me, being part of the John McMahon network offered a lot of opportunities for me. And a lot of the opportunities came my way were either sales leaders that I didn't care for, or just I couldn't get passionate about the tech behind it. And I got introduced by the, to a guy by the name of Mike Spicer. Mike is a founder in Snowflake and, and a venture capitalist. He's also a founder in Pure Storage and on their board as well to this day. And Mike sold me on, hey, make a decision that is people-based and market opportunity-based. And that's effectively why I came to Snowflake. I joined Snowflake in, in 2013 as the director of sales. I took a, a giant pay cut. I figured at this point in my career, five years later, if I projected out, I figured I would have been fired and they would have hired a gray-haired sales leader to kind of be my boss. And I was fortunate enough to have Bob Muglia, our current CEO, come in. He came in after I did and he really bet on me and really pushed me and developed me. And I, I feel so fortunate to be a part of that. that that's a, an incredible story. And particularly, well, first of all, I think uh, unfortunately for both of us, Chris, at this point, we are the gray haired people that, <laughs> that are going to do the replacing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so when you joined Snowflake, I think it's, you know, it was in stealth mode. I don't know if it was pre-revenue, but it was certainly very early. Zero customer, zero revenue, zero, not a single customer. So what do you do? How do you start? How do you get going? And sort of what's like the playbook for the first 12 months when you're in that stage? 
I walked in, I think the first day I said, holy shit, what did I just do? Um, <laughs> and, and then I said, okay, what are the things that I've learned in my sales career? And I, I think going back to, you know, my time at EMC, I said, all right, I'm going to hold myself. I had no manager. Like Mike Spicer was the acting CEO. He was in one day a week. I had a bunch of engineers. There was literally, I was the 16th employee here at Snowflake and there were 15 engineers staring at me. And I said, all right, I'm going to hold myself accountable to metrics. And those metrics are so important to this day. So I ultimately said, I need to have eight meetings a week. That was my goal, eight customer meetings a week. And then that's the high order bit. And by the way, every Friday I had to write an email to the entire company summarizing all of the meetings I had. So I knew that there was a shameful email coming out if I had zero meetings. So that was kind of my self-motivation. And then I had to kind of back into how do I actually go and find customers? Because we were stealth mode. What I did was initially I would go out and try to target the biggest companies in the planet, General Motors or something like that. And I realized that those companies are not early adopters, not even close to early adopters. And so after a few conversations with large enterprises, I really focused my time and effort on companies that were cloud friendly, that had cloud native apps that were more cheap than anything. So I focused on Amazon really advertises their customers a lot. I hired an intern and between her and I, we would build lists based on people that were already in AWS I would go to job boards like indeed.com and look for job postings of AWS job postings. And then I would then go onto LinkedIn, build a list from there and find the highest, you know, the CTO, the CIO of that organization and send them an email. And my email was pretty simple is, Hey, I run sales at a cloud data warehousing company. We've done something really unique where we've built from scratch, this SQL data warehouse where we've separated storage and compute and we natively ingest semi-structured data. I'd love 15 minutes of your time to just tell you what we're up to and see if you could give me any advice on how we could actually make the product better. And that was really my, it was a soft sale. And all of a sudden I went from banging my head against the wall, trying to go after the large enterprise to getting inundated with opportunities after spamming thousands of people every week. And I was cold calling people. And so I was up to my head in opportunities. And that really led me to start building up the organization and gave the investors, quite frankly, the will to allow me to hire people. When you joined, did you sign up for a revenue plan? Was it sort of, and it, was it like a traditional 50-50 comp where half your commission is on closed business or was it much more amorphous because they didn't even know what the sale was at that point? And it's more like, Chris, we'll give you 20% of whatever you close until we figure out where the machine is. And then once we build the machine, we can set a target. I think that's the beauty of, of these ventures. There's not a lot of, I'll, I mean, I'll, we can get into it later, but I'm not a huge fan of the venture capital community. And there's, I think, a very select few of really strong VCs, Mike Spicer being one of them. And Mike said, look, you're not going to, he, he set my expectations low, quite frankly, is you're going to take a 50% pay cut for the next two years. By the way, can you do that? Now, he said the upside is in the equity. So bet on the equity, right? And that's a typical venture capitalist. But I took that bet and I took a huge pay cut in doing it. And he said, you're going to make your own goals, right? And you're going to go and make the product better. And so ultimately your job is to get customers to use Snowflake. I don't care if they pay. I want them to actually use it and make the product better. And that was my high order bit. And that's what I focused on. So I found customers and I begged them. It was probably the hardest sale of my career of convincing a customer to put their data in a product that basically didn't exist. That was really it. And so I gold myself with getting customers and about nine months into my tenure, we signed up our first paying customer. And so 
there was no commissions. It was a quarterly bonus. And I basically made my MBOs up and I shared them with the board and they agreed it every quarter. And that's what I would do. And the MBOs would change quarter by quarter based on where we were as a company. It makes sense. And so then the interesting thing about your experience is, first of all, it's super recent, right? Like it wasn't 20 years ago. You were the first salesperson at Snowflake relatively recently, and you've seen this meteoric growth. So we can dive in and really get really tactical details, which is awesome. So first nine months, you get your first customer. At some point, you start hiring. How do you figure out, did you already have a playbook or a template for, you know, how you're going to build the org, how many sales engineers, you know, the ratios you were talking about, BDRs to field? What was your game plan there? The first hire I had was, of course, an intern where she helped me build a demand generation because I was my own demand generation machine. And then I needed a sales engineer because I was using our VP of product marketing as that sales engineer. So I needed that. And then from there, I was getting inundated where I did not have enough time to actually tell the Snowflake story because there was enough demand that I was generating where I needed more help. So I hired two inside sales reps who are still with us to this day, and they've been promoted to the field a long time ago. And so... I hired two inside sales reps. They started to create more demand. The investors saw it. And so I had to go find the three kind of core foundations of my sales org. And I hired two guys that had worked for me in previous jobs. And then one guy that I had to go find with the help of my recruiter, Chad Peets, on helping get the core foundation of the sales team. So I I started then in, and were these three guys field guys? These were quote unquote field, field guys? Sales, sales leaders. They were leaders that took individual contributor roles. So I convinced them. It was hard, right? But I convinced them to bet on the company, on me, on everything. And that's probably the most important thing that I've learned in this entire process. And what has enabled me to go from director of sales to chief revenue officer is recruit people better than you. And if you're able to do that, you will be rewarded. Absolutely. Recruiting top talent is probably the number one goal of a senior executive. So you added these three folks. These were sales leaders. Were they regionally focused? How did you organize them? Yeah. I mean, effectively, yes. The short answer is yes. They were regionally focused. I had a guy in the Bay Area. I had a guy up in Seattle and and I had a guy in New York. And we kind of just divvied up the country three ways between those three folks. And we kind of started going from there. And then as we saw demand in a specific region, we would hire. So the Northeast was a hotbed for us. And this guy, Vince Trotta, who works for me to this day is Vince is based in New York. He was the first sales rep. We started to see demand not only in New York, but in Boston. And then we, so we hired a sales team up in Boston, both an SE and a sales rep. And then we hired more people in the Bay and, and so forth and so on. So we would follow demand. I mean, it was, Hey, where are we seeing leads? Where can we not get to the opportunities? And then let's go hire a sales team. And the demand is being created largely by you guys, right? Because maybe you didn't even have a marketing work. Because there was, we were in stealth mode. So there was literally, I had the BDR function and we would literally build lists off of job boards, off of AWS presentations. I wanted to focus solely on companies that were in the cloud already and that were early adopters. And you can tell that, you know, small companies generally are cheap. They'll do anything. If if they like the technology and they can get it for nothing or next to nothing, they'll do that. And those were our earliest customers, ad tech customers, online gaming customers who had massive data challenges and didn't have a lot of money. Those are our earliest customers. And so, you know, you you guys are following demand. Obviously, I mean, one of the things that is probably eminently clear, but we should articulate is obviously you have a great product because the demand's going to dry up pretty quickly if a bunch of people are trying this thing out and not 
happy with it. So you've got something that's working, you're scaling up the team. As your responsibilities grew and as regardless of your title, as your responsibility shifted from being a sales manager to being a CRO, what do you think are the main things that changed? What's different about the quote unquote CRO job from a regional head of the West Coast sales or something like that? I think the biggest challenge that I've seen, even within people that, within the organization that I've hired is there are some folks that you hire that are good from, like, like they say, the venture capitalists will say, hey, there's certain sales leaders that are good from zero to 10 million and then 10 to 50 and then 50 to 100 and so forth and so on. And I think the thing that I'd say about it is if you micromanage, if you are a micromanager, you do not have the ability to scale. So as I said earlier, the key in my success here at Snowflake is, hey, yes, the product is world-class and the founders are just amazing people. But on top of that, it's hiring great people and empowering those people to make decisions on their own, helping them navigate those problems. And that's ultimately what I do even to this day. For example, I hired a phenomenal leader in Europe, Thibaut Sorelli, and Thibaut was, he was part of the original team in Europe. And, and I'm not sitting there micromanaging Thibaut. I'm allowing Thibaut to make decisions on where he's going to put people in Europe and how he's going to grow the organization. Now I will give him guidance and I will help him get the resources he needs, but, but I'm not saying Thibaut, go to this sales call, do this, do that. No, man, you, it's your business. You run it. I trust you and you empower those people that you trust. That's basically what my whole philosophy has been here at Snowflake. And I've been very fortunate to hire great leaders. My North American leader, the same thing. So all great leaders. You're articulating the tenets of great management. So for this guy, Tebow out in Europe, what you need from him is one of the things you probably need is for him to tell you what resources he needs. And then you need to give him the goal or the direction. Here's where we're trying to go. Does that sound right? Yeah. So the high order for us, right, is John McMahon, by the way, just a piece of advice I could give to anybody is when I made the decision to join Snowflake, one of the things that I said to Mike Spizer, who I think is amazing. I said, Mike, I, I love you to death. I think I'm, you're so passionate about what we're doing, but there's no one on the board that cares about salespeople. And I'm working for you and the founders who are engineers. I need a sales leader like a person like John McMahon on my board. And literally Mike, the next day, put John on, on our board. And so what I'd say about that and what's key about that is John has a model and it's a productivity model. And we followed that. And that was our revenue build model. And we said, all right, our goal is to get to a million dollars in ACV growth per rep. And so that's the model that we kind of built. And that's how we decided on, okay, I need this much headcount. This will generate after six months. We expect 25% turnover and we'll generate after a rep has been here six months, they will generate 250 grand in ACV bookings a quarter. And that's my, that's basically my unit of measure especially early on. And so that's every region, country that we hire sales teams on, the leader is held accountable to making their reps productive. And productive is, it was $250,000 a quarter. We're at a productivity number that's much higher than that now because we're seeing such growth. And do you factor in the cost? I mean, obviously 250 grand a quarter can be do you factor in how much it's going to take to get to 250 grand a quarter, either in terms of leads, opportunities, BDR support? Is that all part of like the unit yeah, economic yes, equation? There's, there's a rate. Yes, there is a ratio for everybody. So there's for every three field reps, there's one BDR. For every two field reps, there's one sales engineer. And we have ratios. So the numbers of sales reps drive the headcount for the entire company. Right. Because that's all driving the million dollar run rate yes. after the ramp period. Correct. Yes. 
when you think about what's going to make you successful or not successful in your role, what do you think the biggest determinants are? What I've learned in meeting some big company folks is I think a lot of big company folks, and quite frankly, you know, I'm starting to see it from my level now is I never had an assistant. Now I have an assistant. I have a sales operations team that builds my board decks. I used to have to build my board decks on my own. So you can get used to that. It's like living the, the life of luxury, if you will. Right. And, and I think the thing that I've noticed is when you hire big company people and they don't have those resources available to them, sometimes they struggle. So from my vantage point, it's, it's kind of hilarious. In my viewpoint, I get a lot of recruiters calling me and saying, Hey, we want someone that's built a company from zero to a hundred million dollars in revenue. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. But no offense to you, but I, you know, I've done that and I'm probably don't want that job. And I think what's important for those people to realize is you want what my biggest thing is hiring potential over like experience. I think potential and grind are probably the most important thing. So I think the thing that you have to be willing to do at every level at this company or any company is you need to get your hands dirty. And a lot of senior executives are unwilling to do that. You know, Hey, I give this big strategy, but I want a lot of people to execute for me. That's not the way it is here. And even our CEO, Bob Mugley, I think that was my biggest concern when Bob joined, Bob was the president of Microsoft, of the server and tool division of Microsoft. He worked for Steve Ballmer, who was the CEO of Microsoft, and Satya Nadella, who is the CEO of Microsoft, used to work for Bob. And I think the unique quality that Bob has is someone who managed 10,000, 15,000 people. Bob gets his hands dirty. And I think that's the key is he will grind. He will go out on sales calls. He will go meet with customers. He will drive products to do stuff. He will get people. He understands the product better than anyone at, at this company. So I think what I'd say is for those venture capitalists that want to hire great sales leaders, I would say bet on the future as opposed to, you know, hiring the experience. I think those people that grind and want that VP of sales job, there's a lot of potential in those people and go find someone like me five years ago. I think that those are the kind of the, the key qualities of people you know, that you're looking for. How do you test for that? One of the things I've noticed at companies is early stage companies often, they have guys like you, or there's often a couple early stars. The reason those early stars are there is because they didn't have a hiring profile. They didn't have you know, the scorecard in greenhouse. They were just taking a bet on a few different people and a couple of them emerged as massive overachievers, huge grinders. We've got those people here at Behavox. The head of account management is you know, a few years out of school, but this guy will get on a plane and fly anywhere in the world on a moment's notice. His, his name's Nabil Ebrahim. So we've got those grinders, but five years from now, I'm gonna have a spec and the spec is gonna say, I need this much experience and this much experience doing this and this much experience doing that. And what's gonna happen is that those kinds of people are gonna be screened out of the process because they're gonna be deemed to not have enough experience. And so some of that grinding upside element is gonna be lost. How do I find the young grinders on their way up? That's a great question. I think it depends on what job you're hiring them for. I mean, if you're hiring a BDR, you're looking for qualities in that BDR. So in any given interview, I don't care if I'm hiring, you know, we just hired a CFO, right? I was part of that interview process. If I'm hiring a BDR and I'm in the BDR interview, the first question I ask is tell me your life story. Tell me where you're from. Tell me that the reasons that you made the decisions you made in terms of the college you chose, tell me what you did while you're at college. And what I'm looking for are people that there's situations that they've actually had to work, 
had to go grind in their careers. It might be, Hey, they were an athlete and they overachieved and they did X, Y, and Z in their, you know, in their athletic career, or they worked, they paid their way through college and then they got their first job and they out of school. And if you're looking for a field sales rep with potential, the thing that I would say, even to this day at Snowflake, the number one thing that I look for is within the last two years, you need to explain to me in your job, you've actually opened up brand new logos for your company. And if you have not done that, if you've been an account manager, you've managed one account, that's not what I'm looking for 99% of the time even to this day at where we're at from a scale perspective, because we are in hyper growth mode. So you need to find that grit and grind and you're looking for that in their life experiences. So finding tough situations. I, I, you know, one of the questions that John McMahon has got me asking candidates is give me the toughest situation you've ever been in. And I caveat it with, you can get, make it personal and professional because sometimes I've asked it just blunt, just give me the toughest situation. I've gotten some crazy, crazy responses. And sometimes I don't want those. So it's give me the toughest situation that you're comfortable talking to me about. And that's ultimately what I'm looking for is how did they, what is a tough situation? Have they grown up with a silver spoon in their mouth or do they actually know how to grind? Those are the things I'm looking for. What's the terrible answer to the question? Give me your toughest situation. I think it's like, Hey, I failed the test or didn't get a job I wanted or, or something like that. It's I'm looking for real life experiences where they've said, Hey, I was put in a situation. You know, I just interviewed a, a woman who explained to, to me a, a situation that she had a senior leader in the organization her, effectively harassing her and she handled it unbelievably. And that's a really uncomfortable, terrible situation for, for a young woman to be in. And she handled it like unbelievably well as we went through it. And I said, man, A, that's super inappropriate for that guy to do that. And B, good for you for the way you handled it and showed me that she's a pro and she handles it with grit and class. And I think those are the things you're looking for. Makes a lot of sense. I want to get a little bit specific if you're willing to, and just sort of talk a little bit about your sales process. Sure. So you, you guys use, if I'm not mistaken, medic and MedPick. So I don't know MedPick. Walk us through that methodology. Well, so MedPick is, is a variation of Medic. And the P is John McMahon implemented is paper process. And there's an added C on the end. Of, so there's two C's at the end of Medic. You know, instead of just having champion, it's also competition. So assume that 100% of your deals are competitive. And if you don't assume that, you're basically wrong. Sales reps put a forecast up and they say, hey, this customer's sole sourcing Snowflake. And I say, you know, BS, that's not true. And by the way, every sales call I go on, I tell the customer who our competitors are because I am that confident of our product. And the P is paper process. So paper process in, in a world where we're a SaaS company, where we house data, that is painful. We have the typical customer who's moving, especially a large enterprise who's early in their process of moving to the cloud, they put a lawyer on it or a procurement team that basically stifles innovation. I'm amazed at how some of these companies continue to innovate at a large scale because these lawyers are, are stuck in the 1980s. And ultimately what they focus on is, hey, we want to be able to sue you for unlimited amounts of money in the event that you, know, you get hacked. Well, guess what? We're in a world today where everyone gets hacked. 100% like, hey, you know, by the way, the U.S. government gets hacked. 
where you know, the Russians just changed our elections, that kind of stuff. So we're not taking unlimited liability. And by the way, no well-run SaaS company will do that, period. Amazon doesn't do that. Microsoft doesn't do that. Google doesn't do that. And Snowflake doesn't do that. So the paper process is a pain because you have lawyers that like basically draw a line in the sand and say, we will not cross that line. So I'd say that's my number one pain point. But ultimately, the medic sales process is a way that we use, or MedPick is a way that we use to qualify the deal very consistently. And then, you know, this past year, we kind of implemented at my sales kickoff in uh, February this past year, we did a training from a company called Force Management Consulting, and we did force management training, which is just you know, value-based selling on top of Medic or MedPick. And those are the things that we focus on. So we're focused on not just selling a commodity. Hey, Snowflake can run queries really fast. That's a commodity. What are the kind of the value drivers of Snowflake that the business users will get, even though it's a technical product? So we try to take a technical product and then show business value in it to the customer and make sure that the customer understands, hey, this is the success criteria And by the way, you as a sales rep need to make sure that the customer is on the same page as you as on the success criteria. And if the success criteria changes and it changes in a way that we don't like it, you should pull out of that proof of concept and being able to pull out of a proof of concept. What gives you the courage to do that is pipeline. So it all starts with generating strong pipeline. If you do not have a strong pipeline, you're going to grab hold to a deal. You're going to hug it. You're going to love it. And even though the deal from a medic standpoint, doesn't hold up to the qualification. And ultimately you're going to fail as a salesperson. So pipeline generation is what we focus on. And that's what to this day I hold my sales leadership to is making sure they generate that. And we have metrics around that. And then on the medic side of things, we kind of do opportunity reviews with the customers or with the sales reps at any given time. Thank you for that level of detail. Let's talk about quotas really quickly. There's a lot of enterprise sellers out there. Tell us about as much detail as you can give about your comp plans, like what percentage you're paying, where the accelerators kick in, things like that. Always useful information. So I'll just, you know, I won't give you the exact, you know, on target earnings, but in general, when I first started the first year that I started hiring salespeople, we had no real revenue to speak of. We gave reps basically $850,000 ACV growth quota. Today we have reps with a million and a half dollar ACV growth quota. And, you know, we have reps that are killing that. We had a rep that did a $7 million in growth on a million and a half dollar ACV quota. So you can imagine um, that my sales team is pretty happy on on the amount of money they're making. In fact, over 80% of our sales team is actually forecasting to be over their quota this year, which, which is exciting. That's fantastic. And it's an annual quota. Is that right? I don't believe in anything, but annual quotas. In fact, I interviewed a CFO candidate who suggested we should go to half year quotas and no surprise, I was a thumbs down on that CFO candidate. <laughs> you, are, you are a function of being an enterprise seller. I think it sort of depends probably on the market segment. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have a friend at DocuSign who's on, you know, they're on monthly recurring revenue. I, that's not, if you want someone to do that, that's not me, right? That's what I'll say is I'm focused on large enterprise selling, not just large, I'm mid-market to, to, to large enterprise, but field sales organizations. That's ultimately what, you know, my expertise is. And then when I don't have that muscle built, I go hire leaders in that space. And that muscle is for me is, is a guy by the name of Mark Wendling, who's my vice president of corporate sales. So one last question about compliance. So annual quota, whatever it is, million and a half bucks. I don't know what 70% of million and a half bucks is, but is there a 
it's uh, around uh, a million. Below, is there a point at which you don't pay anything at all? That is my question. Yeah, if you don't close anything. <laughs> <laughs> but is there like a break point? Sometimes some folks, it's just controversial topic where like past, if you're under 50% attainment of your quota, you don't get anything at all. No, uh, I'm no, not a fan of that. No, I'm not. That I mean, look, our sales motion is, you know, 100% of our customers evaluate Snowflake. In fact, you know, after this call, you can get on our website and sign up for Snowflake via credit card. So 100% of our customers evaluate Snowflake before they buy it. Now, whether it's a eva free evaluation that we control or it's a paid evaluation that they control, those are up to them. But ultimately, the sales reps and the way that it, the biggest difference in SaaS versus like where I sold, you know, a hardware device at, at EMC is there's almost immediate gratification in the hardware world is, hey, I can go sell a, you know, do a proof of concept. And at the end of that proof of concept, I can get a $5 million deal. Well, with Snowflake, because we're a usage-based system, the sales rep has to go and do a land deal first. Hey, let's go find a use case. So let's go do a, a $20,000 deal first or $50,000 deal first. And that customer will get that use case going. And then we'll upsell them into additional use cases. That is our model. That's how we work. And it's to the benefit of the customer. We actually only revenue based on usage. So a customer actually has to see value in Snowflake for them to use it and for us to ultimately get paid. So our sales team, what I quota them on is ACB bookings and growth. So they have a renewals quota and a bookings quota or growth quota. And so they get one rate for the ACV uh, for the renewal and another rate for growth. And that's what, I, that's what I have them focused on. And then and there's a, in that sense, they're both hunters and farmers because you yes. sell the account, but you got to expand yes. it. And they have a gate um, to get to the accelerators. And the gate is they have to open up a minimum of four new logos in a given year based on their territory, anywhere from four to eight new logos in a given year. Love it. Chris, this has been an amazing conversation. Just a few last questions for you. The main one is, you know, we like to pay it forward. We like to figure out who are the, there's two types of pay it forward questions. One is who are the people that have influenced you and the names that we should know that have been inspirations and mentors. And the second is what are the pieces of content? So what are the books that you've read or the methodologies that have transformed or helped you evolve your sales perspective? In my career, there's been some pretty key folks on the sales side. I worked for a guy by the name of Jim Cavanaugh at EMC. He was a ball buster and he's now president of Asia Pack for App Dynamics. I don't know that I could work for Jim. I, again, I love him to death, but I don't know that I could do that. But he taught me a lot, you know, a lot of, you know, basic blocking and tackling. I think John McMahon, from a sales leadership perspective, he's really helped. He's been really an advisor to me through my entire process here at Snowflake of building the sales organization. And I'm very fortunate that he's been on our board. So he's amazing, amazing. Uh, Mike Spizer from Sutter Hill, again, one of those guys that bet on me in a big way. And ultimately, Bob Muglia, our CEO, who our board said, hey, go hire a quote unquote, as I said earlier, gray haired, experienced sales leader. And, and he said, no, I'm Chris is my guy because look at the organization that he's built. So those are some of the key folks. And then I've been very fortunate to have a recruiter by my side the entire time at Snowflake by the name of Chad Peets. He's a partner over at Sutter Hill. I, in fact, he was not prior to, um, I actually introduced him to Sutter Hill. So I will take some credit in Sutter getting Chad over there. So Chad's been a critical business partner for me. And then there's just, you know, it's important for you to network with other sales leaders. So, you know, like I said earlier, Adam Aaron's from Okta, he didn't owe me a 
anything other than being a nice guy. And I would always ask him how he would handle a situation. Andy Byron, you know, the guy who runs sales over at cyber reason now, an ex boss of mine. And, and he, again, was very kind with his time in terms of coaching me and helping me. So I think getting coaching from peers that sometimes aren't involved within your organization is super helpful as well. Perfect. Any books, anything you think we should read? Yeah. So, so right now I'm one of those people that basically trust nobody. And so this book caught my eye most recently of everybody lies and it's a big data book. And ultimately I didn't know this. There's a thing called Google trends and you can go into Google trend and see what's trending. And what you find is the internet is the ultimate source of truth. And you might not tell your friends what you look at on the internet, but the internet knows and Google knows, which is a little bit scary, but, but learning about that. So it's a big data book about, you know, how people lie, what they lie about and that kind of stuff. So to me, that's probably the most important thing for me right now. Love it. Any last uh, words, life mottos, guiding principles. There's, you know, a young 22 year old listening to this right now and you have a chance to shape his or her mind. What are you going to tell him? I I mean, I, in fact, I just, you know, I just did a speech to our our BDR team yesterday. Look, I hate entitlement. First of all, like if you're a senior executive and you feel entitled to success, if you're a 22 year old who's gotten trophies for winning nothing your whole life, you have to come and earn everything that you do. So nothing comes easy. If it does, it's probably too good to be true. Be humble. And I think that's important for my team now is we've seen success. And I don't, I want to be clear. I have no arrogance about the success I have. I'm on a three-month contract every quarter. That's how I view it. And I have to live up to my three-month contract and I have to hit my quota. And, that, and that's, that's how I run my business and that's how I run my life. <laughs> um, I do think long-term, but I think be humble, grind yourself. Don't expect people to do anything you wouldn't do yourself. And ultimately, don't be an asshole. Because look, it's a small world. People will hear about how you treat people in the future. And although you might be at a good company today, that'll eventually end and you want another good job in the future and and people will do blind references on you. So be honest, be transparent, don't be an asshole and, uh, and go get it. I love it. Chris, thanks so much for your time. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you. Awesome, Sam. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate the time. Hey folks, it's Sam Jacobs. This is Sam's Corner. Another fantastic interview with Chris Degnan from Snowflake Computing. You can hear the passion coming through Chris's voice. He sounds like an awesome guy to work with and an inspiring manager and leader. So I love the conversation. One quick tidbit that you can pull out from Chris, just enterprise sales. So Chris believes in annual quotas and it's one and a half million dollar quota right now at Snowflake and they pay it out annually and you can imagine it's probably like a 50-50 split and it's probably 10x that 1.5 million is probably 10 times the base salary of most enterprise reps and I'm sure it varies but there's a debate around what's the cadence of the quota and my perspective on it is that it should match the sales cycle so for SMB and mid-market probably monthly for SMB certainly maybe for mid-market that's a 60 to 90 day sales cycle probably quarterly and then for longer enterprise sales that are 9 to 12 months in length, it's 12 months. Also note that Chris's salespeople, the field salespeople, they have an ACV growth target, which means essentially that they land an account and then they expand it over time. 
And so that is how their team is organized. I will also say that the life lesson that Chris tries to impart is be a grinder. Just go in there, get your hands dirty, do the work, and be humble about it, and you'll rise to great heights. So that is your Sam's Corner for today. Now, we always want to thank our sponsors, so let's make sure that we do that. AirCall, your advanced call center software, complete business phone and contact center, 100% natively integrated into NACRM, and Outreach, a customer engagement platform that helps efficiently and effectively engage prospects to drive more pipeline and close more deals. I'll see you next time, and thanks for listening.